Thanks for joining us at Colts to Consciousness. This storytelling podcast is meant to be for entertainment purposes only and does not substitute for any medical advice. We may discuss triggering topics and we ask that you make your personal mental health a priority. Lastly, the opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the host. How to understand Joseph Smith in the letter, it instructs the Whitney family to burn the letter. Him trying to get this 17-year-old to come and, in my view, trying to have conjugal relations with him. Spoliation is a doctrine that can be invoked by courts where one side of an issue has willfully either destroyed or hid or manufactured evidence. Hey, my name is Shalise Ansola, and this is Cults to Consciousness, where we discuss leaving high-demand religions and organizations and finding healing and independence through awareness and true individual sovereignty. If you're listening only and you would prefer to see our faces, head on over to my YouTube channel at Cults to Consciousness, where you can see the whole thing. You can like, subscribe, hit the bell so you don't miss an episode. So today's guest, this is a really fun one, and honestly, a lot of this this information is kind of going over my head, so I'm going to really rely on him to give us all the facts because we're going to be talking about legal jargon today. In his ward, a bishop was convicted of child sexual abuse, and he went down the rabbit hole on a bunch of different things and then ended up using his legal skills to kind of unpack Mormonism. Welcome to the show, Colby Reddish. Thanks for having me on. More than happy to talk about this stuff. I think there's a lot of um, great work that's happening in the post-Mormon space. And thank you, Shalise, for being part of that. I think your podcast is off to such a wonderful start. And I hope um, that I can add some value to your listeners. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. This is going to be fun because I love coming at these topics from a really pragmatic point of view. And having a lawyer on the show is a first for me. And you have all of these legal principles that you have used to kind of dissect Mormonism and its truth claims. And so I'm really pumped to get into that and dive even further into that. I, If I can write out the gate, I know that very often when you talk about the LDS church, there are people who no matter what the complaint is, no matter what people um, want to talk about, that they automatically go into this defensive posture. And so just hearing the way you've introduced kind of what we want to talk about today, which is really one, we're going to talk in detail about one legal principle as it applies to Joseph Smith. Um, I can already hear like the apologetic wheels turning, right? Which is (laughs) saying things like, well, why would we expect to apply like legal principles or things that happen inside of courtrooms to the things of God, right? That's going to be foolishness. I can hear those types of complaints. (laughs) And I think the first kind of like opening I would say is that one of the reasons that especially in the American or the British legal system, that those principles or one of the principles that we'll talk about today are important is that they've evolved. um, You know, Britain and America, we both use what's called a common law system, which is that our law changes inside of courts incrementally over time. And so my point is always that these principles has developed over hundreds of years of both British and then American um, legal cases being decided. And so when we try and apply legal principles to Mormon history claims or to Mormon truth claims, um, I know that people think, oh, that's just foolishness to apply these things to God. But my question I would say is, if we can recognize like a very simple legal principle, something like 
consent, right? You have to know the terms of a contract before you can agree to that contract. Why is, you know, quote unquote, the world's way, the way that we would do it inside of a courtroom, inside of the legal field, why is that so much better? Why does it seem so much fairer than the way that supposedly God does it? So that would be my kind of response right out the gate to people who would say, well, you can't apply these things to God. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I would also like to add, that was beautiful. I would like to add that when we talk about the truth claims, we're not necessarily talking about God. We're talking about the man who founded the church that claims to be of God. And I think that 100% applies when you look at the history and who Joseph Smith was and the people around him and the way that he conducted himself. You can still analyze his actions in a legal way. Right. And I think the other thing I would, the other separation I would build, that's a good separation that Joseph Smith is not equivalent necessarily with God. Mm -hmm. The other separation I would build because I get very irritated and grumpy about the leadership in Salt Lake. And so I would actually separate the institution of the church, the decisions that are made by the leaders at Salt Lake with the local church members and their efforts. So um, this is kind of not something we necessarily got into during our Mormon Stories interview, but one of the last Sundays we went to church, um, I looked around the, you know, the chapel as we were kind of closing. And my wife and I had this whole month where we, you know, didn't listen to anything critical of the church. It was all just pro-church. And we were reading the Book of Mormon again, and we had decided to really commit and go, even though we were pretty sure the church wasn't what it claimed to be. Um but in that moment, I looked around the chapel with all these people I'd been going to church with for like 10 years, even though there was, you know, this complicating thing that you've kind of hit on, like our our previous bishop having been arrested and charged with child sex abuse crimes. And I was left with, you know, the feeling of that trope that people hear all the time, the church is perfect, that people aren't. Mm-hmm. And I was really struck by the fact that that trope is exactly backwards. Not that the members of the church are perfect but they are trying so hard inside of a very broken system that's broken because of Joseph and broken because of the leaders today. Yeah. So let's get into it. (laughs) Hit me with all the the legal jargon that I don't know. (laughs) Well, you know, I I could hit you with a lot of legal jargon. I think the the biggest one that we want to talk about in detail is this idea of spoliation. So we talked about the honesty amongst church leaders. Now let's talk about what spoliation is and how this is going to connect. And this actually connects directly with Joseph Smith. And more particularly, it connects with Joseph Smith on the issue of polygamy and the level of control um, and really trying to understand what happened with polygamy. So let me just lay out kind of from a high level what the, the legal idea of spoliation is. Spoliation is a doctrine that can be invoked by courts where one side of an issue has willfully either destroyed or hid or manufactured evidence. And what it what it will do is in a case where spoliation has been found, the court or the judge who's gonna make these decisions is going to instruct the jury who's deciding what actually happened that a certain piece of evidence stands for the proposition that the other side says it is. That seems very harsh. And I'll give an example so that it connects a little bit more with everybody. But I want to get out right out the gate that one of the reasons the rule for spoliation is so harsh is to incentivize people not to spoliate. 
And so let's say, Shalise, that you and I are involved in some type of car crash and I end up suing you, okay? And I allege that as part of this car crash, you rear-end me because you were filming just another late-breaking episode of Cults to Consciousness from your car, okay? <laughs> that's, that's, my, that's, that's the basis of my lawsuit. We go to court and you end up saying, well, Your Honor, no one really knows what happened because, yes, I may have been recording, but that recording ended up being deleted. And so no one can really know. Spoliation or the doctrine of spoliation can be used by the judge in that case to say, no, 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 you don't get to benefit. You don't get the benefit of the doubt for having deleted evidence. So provided that I could prove that that's what you actually did, this doctrine of spoliation would come in and the judge would actually instruct the jury as they consider what happened in the case to believe my version of what that videotape or what that video says. And so again, it makes a little bit more sense when we connect with this idea that this is a draconian uh, measure that's supposed to incentivize people not to delete, manufacture, or destroy evidence. So the question then is, how does this connect with Joseph Smith and specifically Joseph Smith's polygamy? That's where I would look to the letter that you can find on the Joseph Smith Papers Project. And we'll have a link, I think, in the description that that he wrote to one of his 17-year-old plural wives, uh, Sarah Ann Whitney. So the letter is written to Joseph Smith or by Joseph Smith, partially in Joseph Smith's handwriting. That's verified by the scholars at the Joseph Smith Papers Project that it is, again, partially written in Joseph Smith's handwriting. And then it's also written in the handwriting of one of the scribes. I can't remember who off the top of my head. But the bottom line is that if you read the letter, it's asking the Whitney family, the, the mother, um, father, and this daughter, who is Joseph Smith's new polygamous bride, again, at 17, to come and find him and that he has all these strong feelings for them. And it's just really gross. It's him trying to get this... 17 year old to come and in my view, trying to have conjugal relations with him. And um, the bottom line is that in the letter, it instructs the Whitney family to burn the letter. And that is this idea that I want to, to posit as we think about how to understand Joseph Smith and specifically how to understand these historical sources is so often I will run into apologists or more pro, pro-Mormon scholars who will say like, well, you know, we have to stick with this evidence. Um, we have to stick with the historical record. So I'll use an example here. They'll take a statement that Emma Smith made later in her life where she talked about Joseph Smith translating the Book of Mormon. And he, you know, she says in that uh, interview, which was with her son, Joseph Smith III, that Joseph Smith at the time could neither dictate nor, I'm sorry, neither read nor dictate a well-worded letter, something to that effect. And so apologists will often take that statement as gospel truth, and they'll, they'll, they'll try and deliberately unbalance the equation, try and make, whether it's the Book of Mormon or what happened with polygamy, they will try and deliberately create these gaps that then allow them to make God of the gaps type arguments. And to me, this letter we have from the Whitney family or to the Whitney family from Joseph Smith saying, burn this letter. We then also have other contemporary accounts about the happiness letter with Nancy Rigdon 
And then Joseph Smith and Brigham Young's interaction with Martha Brotherton that implies a lot of unhealthiness and control. You start to see these common denominators that Joseph Smith did not feel any compunction about modifying even historical records and historical sources. And so you also see this as he moved through different iterations of what today we know as the revelations and the doctrine and covenants. Joseph Smith would make interlineations. He would make changes. He did the same with the Book of Mormon. Um, and so that's that's kind of one of the legal terms I think I wanted to offer, Shalise, is this idea of spoliation. And really this idea that when you know definitively that someone's willing to modify the historical record, well, then maybe you don't give them the benefit of the doubt in the historical record because you already know definitively that they've been monkeying with that record. Yeah, and it's supposed to be the most correct book on earth, yet there has been many changes made over time. <laughs> and I also really liked how you pointed out in your blog post with uh, your website, mormonismontrial.com. Um, you mentioned in this blog post that spoliation is a really good indicator that just because we don't necessarily have mounds of proof, proof that Joseph Smith had sexual relations with his plural wives, that doesn't mean he didn't, because as you were saying, he is actively instructing them to burn all of the evidence. Exactly. Yeah, and we know that he was willing to engage in that type of practice. Absolutely. And I think then that kind of connects with, and we'll kind of close on this, one of the biggest reasons I started Mormonism on trial, and for the record, I actually deliberately picked a name that believing Mormons would be very unlikely to want to um, go to. <laughs> I know it sounds a little, it sounds a little contradictory when I'm saying like, hey, we need to have we need to have like compassion for people who stay in the church. We need to understand their perspective too. But the reason I picked the name Mormonism on trial was one, the URL was available and it's really zippy. Yeah. And two, because like we've talked about, I legitimately believe that going through a faith crisis is a position of privilege. And so if people are not ready, if they're not willing to go through and really try and determine for themselves what happened, or, or what is the most reasonable thing to believe happened with all this Mormon history stuff. I don't want to be out there confronting people who don't want to have a faith crisis. I really don't. But if people want to use legal concepts to think about how we think, that's really what that blog is for. And I think that's probably a good place to talk about just the idea of burdens of proof and the burdens of, or the standards of proof that we apply inside of a courtroom. So the whole idea of the burden of proof is very simple, right? If we, if we ultimately um, go back to our example where I'm suing Shalice for rear-ending me, as the person making that claim, I bear the burden of proof. That's as simple as it is. The reason I bring that up is I think so often with especially apologetic writings about the church, they will say things like, and I've actually had these conversations, well, they will say things like, well, nothing can disprove the Book of Mormon, so I'm just going to go ahead and continue believing anyways. And mm -hmm. that is coming from a place where your entire worldview is shaped by Mormonism. I think it's very important to remember that like, there are billions of people who will probably never hear about the Book of Mormon. And so just taking it as a given, I don't think adequately recognizes that the burden of proof is really on believers to establish, you know, establish a reasonable belief. 
Then when we get to the idea of standards of proof, that's where you might be familiar with like the language that we use inside of the criminal system, like beyond a reasonable doubt. So that is a standard of proof. In other words, that's a standard that someone needs to meet before reaching a conclusion. So in a jury trial, in a criminal jury trial, if I was charged with a crime, the state would bear the burden of proof. So they have to prove it and they have to prove it beyond a certain level of certainty. And that's our standard of proof. Again, in the criminal system, that's beyond a reasonable doubt. But there are different standards of proof. So in our typical little, you know, Shalise rear ends me um, example, if that ever happens, by the way, Shalise, this will be a very weird time capsule is talking about <laughs> you potentially rear ending me. So if we go to our typical civil burden, or I'm sorry, standard of proof, that is going to be preponderance of the evidence. And all that means is that it's more likely than not. It's 51%. Okay. Means that the evidence shows it was more likely than it happened that, uh, that it wasn't. While in a beyond a reasonable doubt type of case, you're going to have to show that you're really, really certain that it happened, right? If there's any evidence that shows it didn't, then it's going to pose a, a problem for that for that case. And I think the the reason that I talk about this is I don't want to, again, be arrogant enough to suggest that you need to apply the same burden and standard of proof that I do in my life as applied to Mormonism. But the idea is that if we're not thinking actively about what we want to see inside of Mormonism, if we're not actively thinking about what would if Mormonism were true, how would these tests, going back to some of the stories that we've talked about, how would these tests be resolving if these things were true? That's really why I started the blog with this post about the weight and sufficiency of evidence is we need to be thinking about this idea. What would I expect to see? And that's where we go back to this idea of enlightenment thinking and the idea of falsifiability. If, if our beliefs are held in such a way that they can't be proven false, like we haven't created a reality where whatever it is might not be true, then we know that we're not thinking rationally, we're not thinking critically. And I'll give you, I'll give you an example here. I love my wife. I know she loves me. But if tomorrow someone confronted me with verified video of her having an extramarital encounter with someone else, and I saw the receipts, My, that's definitely going to warrant a conversation, right? As we receive new evidence, we need to rethink the conclusions we've reached in the past, particularly if those conclusions have been reached primarily based on feelings instead of any type of empirical or measurable evidence. That's my perspective, and I understand that people might disagree with that, particularly coming from that that really strict Mormon worldview, they'll believe like, well, my feelings are by evidence. And I think mm -hmm. I can even make space for the legitimacy of that view that feelings can be evidence. But it's important to say that we always need to be rethinking the way we're reaching these conclusions. Yeah. And it's interesting with all of this put in place when you have spoliation and burden of proof and standards of proof, and you have actual proof that the Book of Mormon was like a plagiarized document or just completely made up, no artifacts, no proof of it existing. How then do we still have apologists 
who are arguing the opposite? Do they just completely ignore all evidence? Like, what are the gymnastics that they have to do to make this still true? Yeah, I think that's where um, I don't even want to say it's deliberate in the sense that they know they're doing it. But I think when we go back to the comment I made about building gaps for the God of the gaps, I think that's really where it happens, particularly with the Book of Mormon. I've seen a lot of scholars take those type of pro-Mormon sources, like the one we talked about with Emma Smith, or they'll take parts of you know David Whitmer's later publication that addressed to all believers in Christ that they like. They'll take parts of those that they like, and they'll act as if those establish some, you know, absolutely verifiable as if we had it on video type of evidence. And the reality is most of these things were late. Most of these things were uh, not all of those, but many of them were second, third, fourth hand. It can be really difficult to decide what happened in Mormon history. And that's where, you know, I think I've kind of given up uh, really, really digging into figuring out exactly what happened, like specifically with regard to the Book of Mormon. I'm never going to be able to tell a believer exactly where Joseph Smith came up with all those words. I think you know, the Hebrews and some other contemporary texts get you close, but the reality is I don't think we'll ever fully know. But the fact that we will never fully know does not mean that's that alone is a good reason to continue believing and living your life as if the Book of Mormon was true. I think there is enough evidence that disqualifies the Book of Mormon from having been what it claims to be and the church from having been what it claims to be that I am comfortable, again, going back to this idea of, you know, when we think about standards of proof, what do we need to see to reach a conclusion? I am comfortable enough with the conclusion I have reached based on that evidence. And that's what I'd encourage people to think about, particularly if they're just starting these phases of deconstruction is what am I going to be looking for? What is my test? Is the test that I'm going to apply falsifiable? So, you know, going back to just our first story we talked about, trying to walk on water. If you've been told that you can walk on water if you have enough faith and it never happens, that is not necessarily your fault, as I believed it was. Yeah. And when it comes to the Book of Mormon, I think what people try and say is, well, there were witnesses people who saw the plates. And I would love your lawyer definition of who can be actually classified as a witness. You had something about this on your blog, and I thought it was really interesting. Yeah. So the baseline starting point for who can testify to something in court is that someone has to be testifying based off their personal knowledge, off of events that they actually saw. There are some exceptions to that. There are exceptions with everything we deal with in the legal field. But for a starting point, you have to be testifying of something that you actually saw and experienced. For me, it's always interesting when believers go to the witnesses to defend the Book of Mormon, because to me, as a piece of evidence, it's kind of a, a nothing burger. Um, we know that the contemporary records from the, especially the three witnesses, outline that it really isn't like the the document they signed is something that I don't remember if it was generated by Joseph Smith or by someone else. But the bottom line is that the reality of their experience, whatever it was, is not what's recorded in the front of People's Book of Mormons today. That's a simplified and correlated version of an event that happened. 
Um, and I think if people really want, you know, my take on what I think happened with three witnesses, I actually believe that they think they had a legitimate experience. I think that actually makes a lot more sense going back to just kind of my worldview that I think everybody is doing the best they can with what they have. But the fact that they thought that they had a legitimate experience does not necessarily make it a legitimate experience. That's where you really have to apply your own methodology, your own tests to determine if you're going to believe that, you know, testimony. Yeah. And for those who don't know, the witnesses who claimed they saw the plates were claiming they saw them with their spiritual eyes. So when we refer to an experience, I think that's what you were talking about is they they didn't actually see them with their real eyes. They were mm -hmm. spiritual eyes. And that leads me to the final point that I want to touch on when it comes to testimony, as you said, and how you would define it in a legal term and how members of the church use it today. Well, that's so tough because members of the church are all over the spectrum. I think there's the very typical, you know, 1980 Mormon conception that a testimony is like, you know, five specific things and people will talk about it. Um, I think the way I would put it today is that, frankly, that type of testimony just doesn't really move the needle for me in my decision making process, because I know for a fact that I can only perceive life as I perceive it, right? I can't actively try and in other words, if I heard a voice, I cannot guarantee you, Shalise, from outside of experiencing life as I experience it, that I legitimately heard that voice. When we know there are conditions or things that people can do in, in moments of heightened stress where they can hear voices. So I can never guarantee the truth of an experience I've ever had to anybody. Um, that's That to me is why you know, testimony is, is just kind of not a basis, uh, not a great basis for making decisions. That's where I would fall back on this enlightenment thinking empiricism and really thinking rationally and critically as much as we can. Yeah. And I think you had mentioned that when you bear testimony in court and correct me if I'm wrong, you have to actually know that something happened, have personal knowledge of that. And the way that it's used today is more of like, a feel good, like, oh, I know the church is true, but they can't actually prove it. So it's like, it's a little bit misused in that sense. Would you agree? Yeah, I would agree with that in the sense that if I say, you know, I know that Joseph Smith is a true prophet, there's really no way for me to know that. If I testify that I know I'm going to see my family after this life, the reality is there is no way for me to know that. Now, if I were to steal yeah. man the believer position, they would say, well, yes, I can know that through the power of the Holy Ghost. And I think that's where another, you know, not necessarily tied to any specific story, but having had the experience I have had walking away from the church and the same experience you have had, you have been wrong and I have been wrong about things that are very important that I felt very strongly about. And that is actually one of the gifts, I think, of coming out of Mormonism that other people don't necessarily get to experience. And I don't know that I choose it. It comes with a whole lot of baggage. But man, having been wrong about something that you felt in your heart that you were absolutely right about and then having to change your mind, that's a gift in and of itself to recognize 
that we can learn and grow and change our opinion as we get, gather new evidence. That's, that is a, a gift that members in the post-Mormon space have that we need to help members who are still in softly, as softly as we can, understand that like, yeah, I did bear testimony that Joseph Smith was a true prophet. I did bear testimony that this church was true. And I believed it fully at that time. But I changed my mind when I received more evidence. I think there's that great, just anonymous saying that, you know, an honest man, when he's mistaken, discovers he's mistaken, will either cease being mistaken or cease being honest. And that's where, you know, we really connect back with this idea of how do you, how do you make decisions? I think a study of epistemology would do more to lead people outside of Mormonism than a study of Mormon history, if you want my actual uh, take. Oh, that's interesting. It does take a lot to admit that we were wrong. We both know it's incredibly difficult, especially when you go years and years and years of your life proclaiming it to people. You went on a mission. I tried to be a little missionary in Vegas, didn't work. Uh, it's really hard to be like, yeah, I was lied to and I'm sorry for what I said when I was Mormon. <laughs> so with that in mind, do you have a Linda Listen moment for our listeners? Yeah, I do have a Linda Listen moment, and it's for people who are inside of the church, outside of the church, anybody, people who've never heard of Mormonism. My Linda Listen moment is we need to eliminate tribalism. I feel like the human test is for us to get along and to love other people and to create a paradise here on this earth. And we can never do that if we don't start having honest and real conversations about how we reach the conclusions we reach and making space for people who reach different conclusions than ours. So my Linda Listen is Linda Listen, we need to start getting along. We share this earth. We share this country. We share this state. We share this city. We share this home. We need to start making more compassion and less tribalism in this world. That's my Linda listen for you. That is beautiful, Colby. Thank you for sharing. And it's so interesting. I think everyone will find it interesting. Your progression from childhood without critical thinking to a lawyer who is dissecting the truth claims of Mormonism and Mormon history. How can people find you and your website? Um, well, they can find my blog, uh, Mormonism on Trial. But yes, if you have any question or even any, you know, constructive criticism from members who are still in who think I've misstated something, please feel free to correct me. I will correct anything where I'm proven wrong. I promise. Um, so please just reach out to me and, and uh, we can go from there. Beautiful. If you'd like to join Patreon, we're going to have more fun conversations over there. And until next time, follow your highest excitement, be conscious and be well. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, it would mean a lot if you could like and subscribe on YouTube and leave a review or a comment to help with our visibility. You can also find me on social media at Colts to Consciousness or reach out by email at Colts to Consciousness at gmail.com.